Happy Sabbath, everyone. And I'm glad to be here to close the Sabbath with you all. Uh, God is good, and we are instructed in the spirit of prophecy that we ought to guard well the edges of the Sabbath. So it's always good when we come together to, um, to close the Sabbath as a family and to, and to ponder on what we've, we've experienced and what we've learned all day today. Um, but also, well, how do we bring those things into the into the new week? And, um, you know, I just praise God that we have Advent hope. And I am myself amazed that it's already been 10 years of Advent hope. Um, and I want to reiterate something else said earlier, and that is I hope that in 10 years we would have this reunion on the sea of glass, uh, not have this reunion here on earth. I'm really tired of this earth. Amen. I really would love to go home. Um, I want to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 6. And um, I'd planned, normally I do like PowerPoint and stuff, and I had all that planned. And I was sitting in my office in Riverside at our church there and all by myself a little while ago. And as I was just contemplating God's word. He just said, no, I'll just go with these few verses um, and let's just close out the Sabbath with these, these few verses. And I'm going to give a testimony um, as well. So I, I want to just give you some thoughts to enter into this new week with Second Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse six. The scripture says, for though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10 says, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Our message closing this Sabbath, March 3rd of 2012, is entitled, The Most Difficult Sermon I Almost Never Preached. The Most Difficult Sermon I Almost Never Preached. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us together in this place, here in Linda Hall and Loma Linda University, Lord, where for many decades your people have gathered to call upon you. Tonight, Lord, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in double and triple portions. Father God, let Eric Walsh not be seen tonight. Instead, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. The Apostle Paul here 
is really at a crossroad in a sense in his Christian experience. On the one hand, Paul has gotten to a place where his ministry has become an incredible success. In fact, Paul reaches the level of, of spiritual power, as it were, for lack of a better term, that in fact, the scripture records in the book of Acts that people could take just a cloth from Paul and go across town and someone would be sick on the other side of town. And if they came in contact with the cloth that had been Paul's cloth, that the person would be healed. Staggering because, of course, this has led over the years to many soothsayers who have sold prayer cloths on TV and online. But the fact is that the spirit of God rested so much. And, and I want to say to you that we sometimes don't respect how powerful the spiritual realm actually is. The fact that when the spirit of God falls on something or someone or somewhere, that there is a residue of the power of God in that thing. Paul's ministry had reached a point where Paul had just begun to explode. And, and, and because Paul comes out of being a Pharisee, he comes out of a place of legalism and, and judgment and, and self-righteousness. Paul is very afraid. He's very careful because he, he's worried that, that he could fall back into that. Let me tell you that sometimes if, if, if you're trying to be a Christian, success can sometimes be your greatest enemy. In fact, it is Paul himself who warns that when you stand, take heed lest you fall. We must always be asking God to show us if we are moving away from a place of humility and into a place of self-righteousness where we begin to think that somehow we are the authors and the finishers of our own faith. It is in one of these conversations he's trying to share with the church at Corinth. He's trying to share with them his own humility and the source of his humility. Paul is trying to make a very powerful statement. He says, for though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. It is the fool who glories in himself. He who says, instead, I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be or that he heareth of me. Paul says, I need to tell you this because I need you to be careful not to begin to think higher of me than you're supposed to. And let me tell you, in our small Adventist world, and it is a small world, we always talk about how big it is. It's small. There are a billion Catholics, close to a billion other Protestants. Easily a billion Hindus, a billion just in communist China, 20-something million of us. Small world. And so it's easy in our circles to actually have preachers and speakers and leaders who, who rise up and, and, and out of almost just the nature of the American beast, you kind of want an idol. You, you kind of want someone to look up to, someone to give to laud praise on it. And we have to be careful because, in fact, Paul is warning us that even the folk that run our crusades and, and we see on television and, 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 and we hear at GYC, be careful because they're, they're still human too. Be careful because, in fact, there ought not be Adventist celebrities. He says... 
I don't want you thinking too much of me. He says, and, and just in case in verse seven, just in case I would be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that God has given me because of all God has done for me, because all as far reaching and as powerful as my ministry has become just to be careful in verse seven, he says, he says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Now, nobody knows for sure what this thorn is. Some argue that after his experience in meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, that Paul forever had problem with his eyes. There are others that argue that maybe his thorn in his flesh was self-righteousness. Maybe he had an argumentative spirit. Who knows? It doesn't really matter in a sense, because I, I hope that when we read this, we realize Paul is trying to tell us to look at ourselves in a sense. He says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. The thorn in the flesh, the weakness in his physical being is connected somehow. He somehow gets this weakness in the flesh. And because of that weakness, it remains a wedge or a way through which the enemy can continuously mess with Paul. In fact, it buffets him. It, 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 it waters him down in some sense. He, he says that this, this experience of having a physical weakness that translates into the spiritual, somehow this thing changes the way Paul is able to function. It's sent to buffet him. Paul says in verse 8, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times, Paul prays that God would take whatever this thing is from him. Now, this is Paul, don't forget, who's bitten by a snake on an island. And when everybody looks around and says, that's a viper, you're going to die. He shakes it into the fire and doesn't even have a second thought. This is Paul who happily has him, it goes under the sword to find death as a martyr. This is Paul who, who the cloth could travel across town and folk are healed. This is Paul. Yet even when Paul goes to God about his weakness in the flesh, he prays three times and gets no response. And the reason he gets no response is found in verse nine, because God gives him a reason. He, he goes to the Lord. And, he's, and he says in verse 9, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in what? He says, Paul, you know what? I'm not going to perfect you. I, whatever this thing is, I'm not going to take it from you. Because one, my grace is sufficient. The fact that you're not happy with what you have, the fact that you want to be better and do better and you want the thing removed, I'll cover the rest of it. He says, but I want you to understand that your strength doesn't come from yourself. I'm going to leave the thorn in you because you need to understand that the strength comes from me. He leaves it in him, he says, because my strength is made perfect in weakness. And, and some of us, I've seen folk leave the, the circle, and I, let me just speak candidly tonight, circle of present truth. 
I've seen them walk away from Advent Hope and GYC and all the things that we espouse and that we've, we've grown to love and to, and to really even hang our hats on, as it were. And they've walked away because they have not found perfection in themselves. And I submit to you that we need to remind folk that Christ's grace is sufficient. And that in fact, true strength doesn't come from you being perfect. True strength comes from him being perfect. And the problem with some of us is we've bought into the idea that I must be perfect in my own strength. And you know what happens when you're not? You get frustrated. You begin to give up on God. You begin to think that God doesn't care, that he doesn't listen, that he's that he's not there. And you start beating your head against the wall and you start to actually retreat from the God who is actually the source. He's the one who would actually give you the victory over the sin you're fighting. But sometimes we begin to focus and I've said this before, we begin to focus so much on the sin. We stop focusing on the savior. We start focusing on so much on what we're doing wrong and what we want to change that we stop focusing on the source of the strength. I have learned, like the hymn says, that as we look into the eyes of Christ, as we spend time with him, the things of this world grow strangely dim. And the problem is the devil wants you to not focus on Christ. He wants you to focus on yourself. And he's such a trickster that he understands. He can't, he's not going to get most of you to go out and, and drink a, a fourth of gin. Most of, you know, most of us. He, he's not going to get most of us to go to the strip club tonight or the nightclub. He's not going to get most of us to look at pornography on the internet. But whatever your thing is, he can get you to focus on it so much. That you stop focusing on the Jesus who's going to save you in the end. Am I saying you're excused to sin? No, of course not. But I am saying that looking at sin does you no good. The Bible tells us to look to Christ. And the problem with many of us is that when we have, a, and when we have a secret sin, let me just be, be bold and plain. When you are dealing with masturbation and pornography and hidden things that really only uh, you know you're dealing with between you and God and you can't get victory over that thing. The problem is you start to focus on the thing. I want to challenge you tonight to focus on Christ instead. Here in the middle of verse nine. I do want to share a testimony with you, and, 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 and there are a lot of angles to it, and, and I'm going to ask God to just take over so that he says the parts that I'm supposed to say and that what I sh which I should not say, I don't say. And this isn't easy. This is a tough talk for me to give you, especially when it's being recorded, and I know this is going to go around the world. My last sermon was, and we, we, something happened to it, Arden, so we're going to have to fix that, find that. We'll see what we can do about it. Because I gave another testimony then, I otherwise wouldn't have given. But many of you who know me or have known me, and I know some, of, some many of you for many years, have known that I've struggled with my weight. Appetite was my thorn in the flesh. 
And I want to talk about that tonight because I'm not the only one who struggles with that. And then I want to make some inferences from that. Because I hopefully somebody will be liberated. And so I'm going to talk candidly because this is not easy to talk about. It's very embarrassing. But God has told me I need to speak this because this will liberate someone else. This will give someone else victory over sin. So I need to talk about what God has done for me so that maybe someone else will hear this and and be able to apply what I've applied to my life to their life. And I'm going to go way back. I'll go all the way back to growing up poor, because that probably is where a lot of it starts. In fact, we now know, and I'm, my dissertation, an article that I'll be writing to publish, actually speaks about the fact that this idea of actual fetal programming for, for obesity, that in fact, in the uterus is where most, where the adipocytes, the fat cells are actually programmed as to how much fat they'll store, how easily they'll store it, what kind of metabolism they have. So the stress on a child in the uterus, the amount of things like, and I'm going to get a little, as I said, let the Lord speak through me. I'm going to tell you what he's telling me to tell you or, or what is coming to me to tell you and just ask that God leads. But it's chemical hormones in the, in the uterus. And from the placenta comes something called cortisol, cortisol releasing hormone. And when CRH and cortisol are high in the uterus, one of the things we now know from the research, from science, is that it changes the way the fat cells are laid down in the body. How many fat cells? And there are only a few times. In your adult life, you cannot make fat cells. They're made in your childhood and in the uterus. And so what the condition of that mother is under stress has a lot to do with whether and how that child is going to lay down fat cells and how the propensity that child will have to become fat later on. So if you are in that stressful in utero environment and then you're born into what we now call an obesogenic society of processed foods, fast foods, sugars, sodas, dairy products, meats everywhere, fried products, on and on and on and on. And it's marketed to the tune of billions of dollars a year. And of course, the unhealthy food is cheaper than the healthy food. And then you're pouring into a poor minority family that celebrates Birthdays, not by an expensive trip to Disney World, but by a very inexpensive trip to McDonald's. I, I want you to get what I'm saying because I, I'm, I'm going to show you that this is the Satan's web to put you in a place of, of being disempowered is a powerful thing that Satan does to us. In fact, it starts. Sin, the problem of sin starts in the uterus. And I don't want you to miss that because David deals with that in Psalms chapter 51. David says, in essence, and I'll paraphrase it the way most people do. That he, David says, I was born in sin and I was shapen in iniquity. Why is that relevant? Because that statement tells me that even though you might be born in sin and shapen in iniquity, and David has to get victory over sin, being born in it and shapen in it is still not an excuse for it. Being born that way is not an excuse for it, because even as we physiologically figure out why this happens, and I'll use appetite and weight as a prime example, and then we're going to jump out from there, understand that that, 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 that that change that happens in the uterus will impact you the rest of your life. This is why the books like The Advent Home are so critical. 
Why God designed the family the way he did, because he understood that what happens in the home, that the hedge that is supposed to be around that mother, especially when she's pregnant with a child, is one that is supposed to create a spiritually protective uh, a position for that child that, is, that would then last on. This is why the scripture says the sins of the fathers are carried forward in the child to the third and the fourth generation. So I can tell you that as my father left when I was two and he was he, he committed violence against my mother and and he divorced her when I was, you know, the, the problems began. I probably grew up in a in a uterus with high levels of both of those things. I know some of you are saying, boy, you started way back for your testimony, but I'll, I'll jump forward a lot of years. Don't worry. <laughs> because, of course, in high school without a father, one of the things I did do, uh, one of the things I craved to do was to play football. I was preaching somewhere relatively conservative and somebody was upset that I got up and said that I played football in high school. I did play football in high school. I don't know if I should lie now and say I didn't, but I did. And we, we even won a state championship. And I, I really actually enjoyed playing football. I stopped because I wouldn't play on the Sabbath. So after ninth grade, I stopped playing. But playing football was very good for me because playing football did one thing. It kept you nice and fit, running up and down hills, running miles. And guess how much I could eat and, and still lose weight? Pretty much as much as I wanted to. And so my body got to a place where I, I, could, I, I, I grew an appetite for someone exercising two, three thousand calories worth of exercise a day, doing football and wrestling and all the stuff I used to do in high school. But as, as many of you will know, you grow out of that ability. Amen. <laughs> Physiologically, your body does not maintain that. Now, I don't know. The tree of life might do some different things for us when we get to heaven. But here on earth, you grow out of that kind of physiology. And something else happens, of course, over the years. Food becomes a way for you to deal with stress. Medical school is stressful. You, in order to stay awake, what do you do? You eat. You take call in the hospital and you need to stay awake all night. What do you do? You eat. And is it carrots that you eat? Because carrots aren't comfort foods, per se. I mean, for some of you, it is. But for most people... Comfort foods are fried, they're oily, they're greasy, they're chewy, they're cheesy, right? Let's just be, let's just, let's just be honest tonight. And so you start to develop bad habits, even, watch this, despite your knowledge of the health message. Despite your knowledge of medicine and nutrition. Despite the training you've got, despite all of that, the devil sets you up not only by programming your body to be overweight, but by then creating the stressful circumstances throughout life, the, the, the high allostatic load that brings about the same kind of thing through, through, uh, through high cortisol levels again and, and, and adrenaline levels all the time. The devil brings about the, the circumstances in your life that make you want something to placate you. But because you don't drink and you don't smoke and you don't do drugs and by God's grace, you're not out sleeping around. Because let me tell you the other side of the sermon, of course, is that some of the people who are slim are doing some of those things instead of eating. Except the difference, of course, is this. If eating becomes your sin, your body will betray your secret sin. I'm just going to be frank with you tonight. 
Because somebody needs to be liberated, maybe not from food, but from the fact that they are sleeping around. They are looking at pornography. And I can tell you that there are folk who have secret sins that if it manifested itself the way that overeating does, they'd be as big as a house. And that's not a joke. And so you get to a place where you get behind. And unfortunately, you know, we, we especially the, the more conservative Adventists, you know, folk will leave from around the present truth folk and go to some of the more liberal churches because they'll actually not judge them as much about their weight. I don't know, many of you may, maybe have never been overweight a day in your life, but I don't know that you know how uncomfortable it is, how unhappy you actually are. That people who are overweight usually didn't put that on their list of things to do in the senior year of high school. That they didn't want to grow up and be overweight. It's not an issue that they have just decided to completely let themselves go. But sometimes the words that those of us who have the health message and stick to it have are so piercing, so painful, evil almost, so judgmental. You don't do anybody any good with that stuff. And instead, you know what people do in their shame because you're already shamed about being overweight? You know what people do? They eat and they stop coming around the people who judge them. So instead of being able to reach them, you know what you do? You alienate them. And so, yeah, you have a very thin present truth group because all the overweight people went to the church with the drums. Because, in fact, they could probably clear less about drums or no drums because maybe they're really emotionally hurting and no one really ever looked to reach them and ask them, what is it you're going through that we can pray with you about? How can we support you? Because all of the knowledge means nothing if you emotionally can never connect to it. And that is the reason so many people in the Adventist church who know better don't do better. Because knowing it doesn't help them with the pain they're suffering from. And I can tell you, it was Adventist doctors, some of whom are present truth doctors, who about maybe eight, seven, eight years ago put me on medication, fentaramine, right here in Loma Linda and nearby on a diet drug. Present truth doctors. And by doing that, they actually messed up my already messed up physiology even more. Because of course, medications have something called, uh, they have side effects, and there are plenty of them with fentaramine, but they have something that we don't even think about that's probably even worse than the side effects, and that is a rebound effect. So yeah, you can take fenteramine, or which was one half of what was formerly called fen-fen. It's the part legal. If you want the illegal part, you simply have to cross the border. They sell plenty of it in Tijuana. Don't do that. Um, and it works. Just like shortcutting true relationship with Jesus Christ seems to work, just like getting emotionally riled up with drums and dancing seems to work, a lot of people think they're very spiritual and really know Christ because they go to churches where they're running around the church in circles and doing cartwheels up and down the aisles, and it feels good. It feels like it works, doesn't it? But in fact, they've not really ever made a real relationship with Christ. That's how diet pills work. You lose weight fast, efficiently, ridiculously even. 
And as the weight comes pouring off of you and you feel like you have success, but it's only a pseudo success. Because guess what? There's another product, uh, um, uh, um, another aspect of medications, another quality that medications have. Side effects, rebound effect, and a, and a condition about medications and pharmacotherapy called tolerance. Just like being emotionally riled up in church, you have to keep turning it louder and louder and louder after a while to decibel levels where people actually lose their hearing. I say that at churches all the time now. Same thing happens with these medications. And after a while, guess what they don't do? You keep the side effects, but the effects you wanted is no longer there and you'd have to keep doubling the dose. And at some point, doubling the dose is the equivalent of inducing a myocardial infarction, a stroke, or some other pretty significantly morbid or, or fatal condition. So the devil has you now. And I got on this medicine. And I'm telling you this because I want folk to be delivered. Amen. This is embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you because God said, if I deliver you, you got to tell people. Amen. And I got to a point where I, even when I tried to stop the medicine, it was hard to stop. Because then you get withdrawals, headaches. You feel foggy. You feel horrible. And of course, once you finally get the, go through the difficulty of getting off the stuff, the rebound effect kicks in. And all of a sudden, you lost 50 pounds with the medication. Those 50 pounds go out and get some of their best friends. And they come back. And what was 50 pounds becomes 80 pounds, 90 pounds. 100 pounds. I want people warned who hear this never to take diet pills. That is not the answer to a weight problem. It is a bad physical fix for a real spiritual problem. So then, of course, you can't lose weight. You, I spent hours in the gym. I went vegetarian to vegan to stricter vegan. Nothing worked. And, and God began to speak to me at the end of last year. As I began to get more and more frustrated, and I got to begin to get to that place where I started to say, you know what, Lord? Obviously, I don't have a relationship with you, or you would take this thing from me. I began to doubt my relationship, and guess what the devil wants you to do more than anything? He wants you to doubt your relationship with Christ. He wants you to begin to doubt God's love for you. He wants you to begin to question God's benevolence towards you because then he's got you. That's how people walk away from truth. That's why Paul puts this in the scripture. Because Paul wants you to understand in a powerful and meaningful way that even in your weaknesses, your strength must be found in Christ. God reminded me of a saying that I got right here at the Veterans Hospital. And I've said it also before, and that is at the end of the when we in our preventive medicine residency and some of those who've done that with me are here. And, and, and at the, in one of our rotations at the Veterans Hospital, we do the addiction treatment unit and, and you have to be in these groups with, with, with veterans who are former addicts. And it's powerful. One of the most spiritual environments I've ever been in because people lay themselves bare. They lay themselves open. There's no pretense about who they are or, or that they've got it all together. They're willing to confess how messed up they are. 
And you know what the Bible says about that? The Bible says, confess your faults one to another that you might be healed. For the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. The problem with some of us is we're too proud to do what I'm doing now and find another Christian that you can confide in who will be accountable with you, who, who, who will go through the battle with you, who will help you to gain the victory over whatever your secret sin is or not-so-secret sin. And at the end of those groups, they would hold hands, those men, some of them tagged old soldiers who fought for this country in, in, war, in great wars, and they would hold hands as they stood in a circle and they would say, God made the human heart so big that only he can fill it. And they would talk about the fact that if you try and fill that heart with anything else besides God and his love, you'll be addicted to something. Sex, work, food, drugs, alcohol. If God does not... Fill the God-sized hole in your heart. You will become addicted to something. And I began to agonize with God. He began to really take me to a different spiritual place. I stopped preaching for a little while. Because sometimes we've got, you, you can't keep doing ministry. You can't keep trying to give to other folk when you haven't gotten. You've got to stop what you're doing. That's why you see some of our leaders just completely co go, 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 go collapse in one moment. Just the whole ministry fall into a bed of sin. People who we exalt so high and they just co bam collapse because while they were out giving you all that stuff, they, they weren't feeding themselves spiritual food. And sometimes you've got to take a recess from ministry and take time to go out and give to others. Give to yourself what you've been trying to give to others and spend some time alone with your God. And I began to do that in November, October, November, December of last year. And in December, I, I, I got to a point with God where I said, God, I'm, I'm tired of struggling with weight. I can't deal with this anymore. It's, 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 it's embarrassing. It's, it's difficult. It's shameful. I've tried, Lord. I've tried everything I can do. Every gimmick, every fad. I've read every one of Ellen White's books. I've read all of the other books. I've gone to Chip. I've done it all. I'm tired. <laughs> and God said, that's the problem. You keep doing. You haven't stopped to let me do. At that time with my kids, I was going through the book of Luke. And it was about that time I got to the story of the demoniac boy. You know the story where the disciples could not heal the boy. And of course, Jesus heals the boy. And one of the two parts of the story that were relevant as we were having family worship. And let me tell you, don't, if you want to be delivered from something, have family worship. God will speak to you in family worship. And two parts of the story spoke to me. And I won't get into the story too much except to say when the father finally confronts Jesus, he says, Lord, if you can have compassion on us, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can believe, ha, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believe. The problem isn't God's compassion. It's your belief. The problem isn't God's ability to deliver you. 
It's your, it's your desire to believe him that he can. Because guess what? Sometimes you actually begin to adore the sin. Let's just be frank. You actually begin to love the sin. You and the sin become friends rather than you and Jesus becoming friends. You cuddle up with the sin. And for some of us, the cuddling up with the sin is opening the refrigerator. But the refrigerator becomes more where you turn in time of problem and crisis rather than turning to Christ. So if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Amen. But the man's response is quintessential. Because the man understands he doesn't have enough faith. He understands that he's not there yet. And that's what spoke to me. Because God was telling me you're not there yet. Listen to what the man said in response. The man says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. He believed enough to take his almost rabid appearing son to Christ. Come on now. Through seizures and fights and fits, he had enough faith to get him to Jesus. But even when he got to Jesus, he still didn't have enough faith to completely believe Jesus. And some of us have come close to Christ, but haven't fully believed him yet. We're like Judas who spends three and a half years with him and doesn't trust him to set up his own kingdom without our help. The other part of that story, besides the fact that I realized, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. The other side of the story was this. When you get to the end of the story, the disciples are baffled. We've healed before, Lord. How come we couldn't heal this time? Jesus's response is again one that is one for the ages. He says, some things come only solamente, only by prayer and fasting. Some stuff is not going to go with just a regular rinse and wash cycle in the machine. Some stuff you keep doing what you've been doing simply isn't going to help. You've got to stop what you're doing and go to God in prayer and fasting. Because God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And some of us have dealt with our sin by simply a simple, Lord, you know, take this appetite thing. You know, take this weight thing from me, Lord. I'm, I'm tired of being over. And you move on. God says, no, the thorns in your flesh for a reason. This is how I am going to get you to bond with me and to learn of my strength. Don't just mull over the sin and, and pray for it in this little light, uh, watered down way. Stop what you're doing. Pray and fast for victory over sin. Why? Because when you pray and fast, inherently the appetite that was drawn to the thing, in my case food, that desire under the holy influence of God now gets turned to Christ. And in the process of praying and fasting, you begin to focus more and more and more on Jesus than on anything else. 
you begin to realize that he is the only source of strength. Let me wrap this thing up by saying that that's exactly what I did. I did see a movie called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. Right after that, within two days of, of, of that prayer, that, that agonizing moment in my closet with God. And God said, you need to fast. I said, how long, Lord? And the guy in the movie fasted for 60 days. I said, Lord, that's, you know, that's not a, that's, that's, that's a super fast. Uh, <laughs> he said, no, juice. And we already had a juicer. Juice. This, ain't for, this is not the solution for everybody. So I'm not, this is not a medical prescription now. I'm preaching. I'm not Dr. Walsh right now. I'm, I'm Sinner Walsh right now. And I began to just juice. I can't stand juice. <laughs> I mean, and I mean, I'm not talking Tropicana Dole right now. I can drink that with no problem. I mean, we, we, I mean, we should have bought shares in Kool-Aid when I was a kid. I mean, I could drink regular sweet juice. But spinach juice, <laughs> kale juice, celery juice. I've drank enough spinach to make Popeye shamed at this point. <laughs> but I began to juice three times a day, fasting and praying. And in 60 days, I lost 80 pounds. Amen. I spent a lot of time in the gym, so don't think I just juiced. <laughs> Hundreds of push-ups, sit-ups, running, cycling, hiking. I mean, miles put in. Because I said, I'm, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm going to focus not just on, I'm going to focus not just on not eating, but I'm going to focus on solutions. So I, I, I mean, I took my workout. I've always worked out. I love to work out, but I took my workout regimen up three notches. Folks said, you, you know, where are you going to get protein from? I said, plenty of protein in green vegetables. And you can look at me and say, nothing happened with me protein-wise. I mean, in fact, I increased muscle mass as I lost fat. And at first, it was about losing weight. That first 14 days, I went through some withdrawals. I didn't know some of the stuff that was in me as I detoxed that first five to seven days. But I didn't know drinking beets. I drank a vampiro, in fact, from the Mexican juice bar in Pasadena. I mean, I was drinking juice anywhere I could find it. Beet juice is vampiro. It's not blood. It's, it's, uh, it's beet juice. And, and I started drinking juices. And what God began to reveal to me was you only need to consume enough to do what I need you to do for the day. I was drinking less than 24 ounces of juice a day and had more energy than I ever had in my life. I was doing more at the gym than I ever did. I went and played ball with some young bucks and, and handled them on the basketball court. And for those of you who think playing basketball is wrong, forgive me, but I handled them. <laughs> and I want to tell you that God gave me strength. And one night as I was circling, I live right down the street from the Rose Bowl. As I was walking around the Rose Bowl by myself, just talking to God. God, and I said, Lord, how is it that I can just drink juice and have more energy and drop all this weight all at once. I said, Lord, this is, doesn't make any sense. And God said, juicing is the closest you can come to the tree of life on this side. That 
tight package of phytonutrients, micronutrients. He said, and the way you were eating, even as a vegan, didn't give you those nutrients. Because guess what? French fries are vegan. <laughs> Potato chips, tortilla chips, pita chips, vegan. In fact, God revealed something. He said, stop thinking vegan. He said, in fact, because being vegan is a term that has been stolen. It is a term for those who want to save animals and the planet. Not that anything's wrong with either one of them, but those things are attached to spiritualism in a way that will manifest itself later. Stop thinking about that. He says, think about being a whole food, plant-based consumer. He says, stop, you're thinking about things. You're looking for a quick fix. Being vegan is not a quick fix. You've got to be a whole food, plant-based consumer. That's how you've got to be. And juicing is going to change your palate so that that's what you can be for the rest of your life. Now, most people need to do this for just five to seven days. 60 days would not do you any good. You don't need to do that. I mean, it would do you good maybe, but don't do it. Do, you know, shorter runs would do fine. And I want to tell you that towards the end of it, it became purely spiritual. I stopped even thinking about the weight. It just came off. But by the end, God began to speak to me about the condition of the church, the need to preach the gospel with power, the importance of present truth, the importance of standing up now as a church and living for Christ in ways that 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 seem antiquated to others, that it is time that we be serious about being Adventist Christians. And that you not get caught up with the things of this world, but that you begin to look to God as your sustainer. Just as he can sustain you through fasting, he can sustain you in all that you need. Amen. And I'm here to tell you today that it was when I finally said, I give up. I said, God, I quit. I'm not fighting this anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. I quit. That's when he gave me the victory. Amen. The victory was given to me before I lost the first pound. Because it was spiritual. It wasn't some formula. It was spiritual. Now, I'm going to read the rest of this and we'll be done. Verse 9 ends. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I've learned that God gives you things to struggle with because in struggling with them, you find Christ more abundantly. The last verse Chapter, verse 10 of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians says this. Therefore, Paul says, I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, for, in distresses for Christ's sake. Watch the last part. He says, for when I am weak, then am I strong. The final lesson I got out of this process and it's never over. This is something I'll deal with the rest of my days, I'm sure. I'll stay in prayer about it, but I will claim God. Uh, I will claim victory in the name of Jesus Christ. But it's when you're weak and you're willing to be open about it and confess it and recognize it and give it over to Christ that you become strong in Christ. And I'm here to challenge some of us who are struggling that in fact, whatever you're struggling with, as however you got it, however terrible it is, that in fact, the best thing you can do right now is to turn it over to Jesus. Leave it at the foot of the cross and take up his yoke. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
This was clearly the most difficult sermon I almost never preached. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for just giving us your word, for saving us from sin, from delivering us not only from evil and from sin and from the devil, but Father God, even from delivering us from ourselves. Somebody else needs to hear this message. I don't know who they are. I don't know where they are, Lord. I only ask that wherever they are, when they hear it, Lord, they would stop focusing on themselves and on their sin and turn their eyes fully on Jesus Christ so that the things of this world would grow strangely dim. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name as we end this Sabbath. Bless this week. Amen.